Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 34 of the podcast in which we will discuss chapter 12 of Prince Caspian titled Sorcery and Sudden Vengeance. And uh, before we begin with the chapter, that we just need to note that it's been uh, quite a hiatus from the podcast for a few months as uh, things with school had been um, rather interesting in light of the year 2021. Um, but I wanted to mention before we begin uh, a quick shout out to a very devoted listener of the podcast. Uh, so this episode is dedicated to Serenity Gagas, who uh, has been listening to these uh, podcasts with her mother. And so I wanted to shout out to her and, and thank her for listening. As we move into chapter 12 of Prince Caspian, things begin to come into a head here as uh, the opening of the chapter, Trumpkin is leading Peter and Edmund uh, to Aslan's Howe. By the end of the chapter, they will meet King Caspian. You have this great interaction between High King Peter and King Caspian as they are formally introduced with Trumpkin there. Um, and uh, it's a, a beautiful exchange and transference of authority, of power, where Peter, uh, rather than be in competition with Caspian as the film portrays, if you've seen the, the movie of Prince Caspian, there seems to be this, uh, this competition or this sense of adolescent rivalry between Caspian and Peter that doesn't seem to be in the book. Uh, where Peter, uh, rather than say he is seeking to uh, unseat Caspian from his uh, his rightful throne, rather he says, I'm here to place you on it. That there's an endowment of authority from High King Peter to King Caspian. Which remember, at this point, High King Peter is being recalled from about 1300 years of, of Narnian history. So uh, it's, it's a fantastic uh, occasion where Caspian and Peter are, are meeting face to face here. But before we have that interaction, we have the title of the chapter, The Sorcery and the Sudden Vengeance, to deal with. And as we'll see, this centers rather interestingly on the character of Nicobrick uh, when we get to him. But at the opening of the chapter, we have, uh, as I mentioned, Trumpkin and the two boys arriving at the dark little stone archway, which led into the inside of the mound. So they've been on this journey over the last several chapters, and now they've arrived at Aslan's Howe. Uh, and they are interrogated at the archway. Uh, who goes there? Trumpkin uh, gives his name and he says, bringing the high king of Narnia out of the far past. And the badgers nosed at the boy's hands and they say, at last, at last. And there's just this continuing, almost subterranean theme to this novel about redeeming the past. That this, uh, I mentioned in the very opening episode, this is a return to Narnia. Uh, was the subtitle of the of the novel that there are things that occurred in Narnia that need to be returned to, and whether that's Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy having a physical return to Narnia at the blowing of the horn, uh, that their aid was needed in a time of help and emergency, but also things that had been forgotten, things that had become ancient, and things that had uh, smoldered into ruin need to be regrown, need to be reborn. I'm reminded of a passage in Genesis where it says that Isaac, the son of Abraham, uh, goes to dig up the old wells of his father's day and to call them by the names that his father had given them, that the Philistines had stopped up the wells with dirt and earth uh, as a means of attack. And Isaac, in the name of his father, in the memory of his father, goes and redigs the old wells and gives them his 
their rightful names, gives them the names that his father Abraham had given them. We see the same ethic in uh, one of my favorite quotes from John Milton when he's talking about education, that he says the, the end of learning, the purpose of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents. And so this, uh, this ethic of repairing ruins, of restoring, of returning to, of revisiting the past, revisiting the ancient ways, uh, returning to the old roads and the old traditions is something that seems to be quite close to Lewis's heart here. And so Trumpkin's declaration that he comes bringing the high king of Narnia out of the far past. I think there's more going on there than just the fact that Peter has been uh, plucked out of the past, as it were, physically, literally. There seems to be this, uh, this intention to reclaim old thrones, to restore this, this medieval way of life uh, over and against the very modern, sterile wasteland that Miraz is tyrant over. Um, which we talked about in an earlier chapter. And all of that is going to reach its culmination point with Nicobrick, where Nicobrick, the dwarf, uh, represents in many ways this integration point of several modern philosophies. I find this chapter to be one of the most philosophical in the novel, uh, where the council that Trumpkin and Peter and Edmund will overhear going on, as they arrive into Aslan's how they, they overhear this this deliberation going on between the, the king, Caspian, and Truffle Hunter and Cornelius on one side, and Nicobrick and what we come to find out to be a hag and a werewolf on the other, and they're deliberating as Peter and Edmund and Trumpkin are eavesdropping. And what we are invited to hear there is Nicobrick making a defense for a particular plan of action that he wishes to take that is centered on reasoning that sounds an awful lot like uh, secular, modern philosophies. In many ways, Nicobrick speaks like someone on Miraz's side, that he, as of right now, has this rather tenuous allegiance to Caspian, but he talks quite an awful lot like a, a Miraz uh, follower, a subject of Miraz's, with this, this modern ethic of pragmatism, of moral relativism, and so on, which we'll look at. Uh, they are admitted in to the archway, Trumpkin and Peter and Edmund. Uh, there's a great moment where Edmund whispers to Peter and, and he points out these carvings that are on the wall, uh, which might remind us as readers of, of ancient runes and carvings that might be in caves and, and other things that are, that are thousands of years old. And so he whispers to Peter, he says, look at those carvings on the walls. Don't they look old? And yet we are older than that. When we were last here, they hadn't been made. And Peter replies, yes, that makes one think. And it's just a great reminder, too, of what I've mentioned earlier, that Peter and Edmund are plucked out of the ancient past in Narnian time. And so they're remarking on a, a, a literal feature of the world that Lewis has built, that uh, since Peter and Edmund had been gone, much had happened in Narnia. Uh, that to Caspian is ancient. And yet for them was merely a year ago. But it also just uh, the Peter's response of how that makes one think invites us uh, into something in this chapter that we need to carry into Nicobrick's conversation that we're about to read, uh, which is that there's more going on in the world. There's always more going on than what we might be led to believe by our physical sight and our physical sensations. Uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we'll see this with Ramandu, the star, 
who tells Eustace that even in our world, uh, a star is not merely a, a ball of gas. Uh, he says that's what uh, a star is made of, but not what it is. Even in your world, that is not what a star is, but simply what it's made of. And we get a gesture of that here where there is more to Peter's identity and Edmund's identity. There's more to Narnia. In fact, there's more to the world around us than that which we can rationalize or that which we can tie down to a particular chronology or a particular linear logical means of understanding things. That our epistemology, our means of knowing what we know and knowing what is true is limited. That there's more going on than just reason. There's more going on than just what might be rational. Uh, that's the language of Miraz, that which is practical, that which is rational only, that does not admit anything magical or miraculous. And so for Peter to say, yes, that makes one think, we're reminded of this ongoing mystery that uh, boggles the minds of Peter and Edmund, that they could somehow inhabit Narnia as boys when it's been over a thousand years since they were last there. It's just, uh, there's a line in Hamlet, where it says there's more, uh, there are more, there's more to heaven and earth uh, than is dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. There, there are more things um, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Th that reality exceeds our our finite mind. But they overhear this conversation happening inside, and we are told by Trumpkin whose voices belong to whom. We're told who's Caspian. We're told who is Nicobrick, who is Truffle Hunter, who's Cornelius. So Trumpkin sort of translates for us and for Peter and Edmund who the voices are in the conversation. And then we are brought in by the narrator to overhear that conversation uh, directly as we are uh, invited into the dialogue. And they're arguing over their last resorts. Uh, there is some truth to this, that they are in a losing battle here. They blew Susan's horn to call for help. And they, unlike us, are unaware that help is on its way. And in fact, that help is there, that the high king, Peter of old, is at the door. We know that. There's a great sense of dramatic irony there where the reader knows that hope is not lost. But Caspian and Truffle Hunter and Cornelius and Nicobrick don't know that. And so we overhear there deliberating on uh, the seeming hopelessness of their circumstance. And Truffle Hunter says, the help will come. I stand by Aslan. Have patience like us beasts. The help will come. It may be even now at the door, which is a great line <laughs> because it is at the door. Uh, but he's pleading with Nicobrick to have patience, to not walk by sight, but to walk by faith. And again, that, that contrast of walking by sight, walking by reason, walking by what we can see, walking by what we can readily perceive, walking by the mirror here and now, versus walking by the promise, walking by, by faith, walking by um, a faith and an assurance in what is yet to come, that we are trusting in Aslan. Uh, we see that with Truffle Hunter here. He stands by Aslan even when it looks like all is lost, even when it looks like help will not come. And we saw that in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe with the beavers, where they insist on the words of the prophecy, even though it's been a hundred years of winter. And it seems like all hope is lost. Uh, the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver hold out a promise that Aslan will come, that wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And hence, they are, therefore, they're so uh, 
enamored of the the force the, the two sons of adam and the two daughters of eve that come that might occupy the thrones of care Paravel. so it may be even now the door nicobrick uh snarls at that and he launches into his argument which is worth uh treating uh slowly and systematically seeing exactly how nicobrick argues for a separate plan of action that they've blown the horn uh, they've listened to caspian but now enough is enough and they need an alternate plan. And Nicobrick lays that out for them rather slowly. He says at first, uh, well, rather he, he has these friends that are with them that we come to find out later are a hag and a werewolf and uh, attention is drawn to them. And he says, why am I to be the only one who can't bring in his friends? And, and throughout this whole dialogue, Nicobrick's constantly preoccupied with his rights. Uh, why am I not allowed to do this? How come the king gets to do that? And you see this, this sense of uh, dissatisfaction, um, particularly an issue that Nicobrick has with hierarchy. Uh, that, uh, that Trumpkin earlier um, had an alternate response to. He says, I, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. I've given my advice, and now it's time to take orders. And so Trumpkin has a very uh, clear and, and cogent understanding of hierarchy and of courtly manners and of chivalry and, and uh, the kingdom. Nicobrick takes issue with it. Well, how come I don't get to do that? How come the dwarves always have to do this? How come we always have to do that? How come we never get to do this? And in many ways, he sounds like the older brother in the Lord's parable of the prodigal son. How come I don't get to do that? And the issue with hierarchy here, uh, if you uh, want to read more of Lewis's view of hierarchy, especially as a feature of the medieval cosmos, which this novel is very much a medieval novel. Michael Ward in his book, Planet Narnia, treats that idea of how Prince Caspian is very much this medieval martial uh, novel. But if you wanna read more about Lewis's view of, of hierarchy and how it works its way out, there's a great chapter in his preface to Paradise Lost uh, that's simply titled Hierarchy. I would, I would, wide, I would um, very much recommend that for you to read. Uh, but Nickerbrick is, complaining that he doesn't get to bring friends. Truffle Hunter says his majesty is the king. He, he gets to call the shots because he's the king to whom you've sworn allegiance. And Nicobrick sneers, court manners, court manners. So already we're seeing unpacked Nicobrick's dissatisfaction with the way of things. It's not a private or personal grievance. He has a grievance against the way of things. He has a grievance against the way the world is built. That It's not like he doesn't like Caspian. He doesn't like kings. It's not as though he has a private uh, beef with a particular individual. He has a grievance with the order of the world. He has a grievance with the idea of kings and princes, the idea of court manners and expectations itself. Uh, and so we find out and we hear from these two side characters, the hag and the werewolf. Uh, and then we move into a more detailed description from Nicobrick of this plan that he's formulating. I just want to take a, a moment to, uh, to to hear from Nicobrick at length here. It says, there was a pause so long that the boys began to wonder if Nicobrick was ever going to begin. When he did, it was in a lower voice, as if he himself did not much like what he was saying. There's a great insight there into Nicobrick's own uh, characterization there, that perhaps there's a part of him that recognizes the uh, evil or recognizes the um, the sinfulness of what he's about to put forward. So Nicobrick says, all said and done, 
none of us knows the truth about the ancient days in Narnia. Trumpkin believed none of the stories. I was ready to put them to the trial. We tried first the horn and it has failed. If there ever was a high King Peter and a Queen Susan and a King Edmund and a Queen Lucy, then either they have not heard us or they cannot come or they are our enemies. So there's a lot going on here in Nicobrick's philosophy. First, we get his own epistemology that none of us knows. None of us can know if the stories are true, uh, which is not necessarily true. Right? He, he's chalking up to um, irrationality, something that is either nonsensical or that we have no access to knowledge about these old stories. And then he moves into what Jonathan Rogers points out as these logical fallacies. He has this, uh, this false dichotomy, these, these either or fallacies. Either they've not heard of us, I'm sorry, either they have not heard us or they cannot come or they are our enemies. And he says, first, we can't know if there was a, a King Peter, a King Edmund, a Queen Susan, a Queen Lucy. We can't know. And even if there were, either they've not heard us or they can't come or they are our enemies. That's all. And he creates this false uh, dichotomy between all these different alternatives, which uh, brings Truffle Hunter to say, or they're on their way. And so already we're seeing this, this argument come up against Nicobrick's worldview to say there is another option. And that option is that there is a Peter, a Susan, an Edmund, a Lucy, that they have heard the horn, that Aslan has sent them to us, and they are on the way, which is great, a great reminder for our, our own Christian worldview when people might be tempted to say either, first of all, there, there's no way we can know that Jesus's claims are real. There's no way we can know there is a Jesus uh, as described in the Gospels. And even if there were, he's either A or B or C. And Christians need to come in and say, or he is who he says he is. Lewis treats this the same idea in mere Christianity, where uh, suppose Jesus's claims are true. Right? Remember the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that say, suppose your sister Lucy is telling the truth. Suppose there is a land called Narnia that she reached through the wardrobe. Suppose it's that. And so the professor reminds us of, this, of the same sort of way of thinking uh, that Truffle Hunter puts in. Perhaps we are, we are to walk by faith. Perhaps we are to hold out hope. Perhaps we are to cling to the promises rather than to um, dismiss anything that could be true simply because we can't see it. Nickerbrick continues. You can go on, go on saying that till Miraz has fed us all to the dogs. As I was saying, we have tried one link in the chain of old legends and it has done us no good. Well, but when your sword breaks, you draw your dagger. The stories tell of other powers beside the ancient kings and queens. How if we could call them up? And Truffle Hunter says, you mean Aslan? I, uh, surely, um, if Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are on the way, they were sent by Aslan. And we slowly discover that Nicobrick suggests not Aslan, but a power that he suggests to be greater than Aslan. And we find that out to be the White Witch. He says, uh, no, you're right there. Aslan and the kings go together. Either Aslan is dead or he is not on our side. Some more logical fallacies or else something stronger than himself keeps him back. And if he did come, how do we know he'd be our friend? He was not always a good friend to dwarves by all that's told, not even to all beasts. Ask the wolves. 
And anyway, he was in Narnia only once that I ever heard of, and he didn't stay long. You may drop Aslan out of the reckoning. I was thinking of someone else. Now, as I said, Nickabrick is starting to reveal his true plan. In so doing, he's revealing his philosophical assumptions uh, through a bunch of fallacious arguments that either Aslan is dead or he's not on our side. Well, what if he's not dead and he is on our side? Is that a viable option? Why is Nickabrick excluding that from the realm of possibility? But there's also this great anticipation here from Nickabrick for a future villain in the silver chair when we hear from the Queen of Underland, who uses a similar tactic of trying to weave these rhetorical devices, trying to weave these logical fallacies to um, occlude and to cloud and to um, confuse the point with false arguments. Well, did Aslan really say this? And how do we really know? And the reason you're saying A is only because of B. That's the only reason. It can't be anything else. And so in the Queen of Underland, we're going to see this great um, dramatization of what Nickabrick's doing here on a much more subtle uh, plane. And so he's not thinking of Aslan. We find out he's thinking of the White Witch. And here he, we get to the the absolute focal point of Nickabrick's philosophy. All three voices cry out at once, the White Witch. He says, yes, said Nickabrick very slowly and distinctly. I mean the witch. Sit down again. Don't all take fright at a name as if you were children. We want power. And we want a power that will be on our side. As for power, do not the stories say that the witch defeated Aslan and bound him and killed him on that very stone which is over there, just beyond the light? So many things going on here. First, his insult to the others that they're taking fright at a name. Uh, he is He's trying to reduce the import of what he's suggesting by saying that they are terrified of a mere name. Uh, but as we all know, names have meaning, words have meaning, um, and therefore the name of a thing really can't be removed from the power of a thing. But there's a great quote from Tom Shippey that I just want to uh, cite at the outset here because it's going to help frame a lot of the philosophical weight of what Nickabrick is uh, relying on, what his axiology is, his value, what he wants, what he desires uh, above everything else, and the means by which he's willing to achieve that desire. Tom Shippey, Tom Shippey, Tom Shippey in a, uh, a book on Tolkien, said, evil has to be resisted and fought, not by all means available, but by all means virtuous. So evil has to be resisted and fought, not by all means available, but by all means virtuous. And what we're going to see here is that Nicobrick, in his desire for power, which he repeats that word three times in this quote, we want power. We want a power that will be on our side. As for power, do not the story say the witch defeated Aslan. So we see this triplet there of, of the power that he's wanting. And Nickabrick is going to unpack for us this Machiavellian pursuit of power. Power at all costs. Power gained uh, by whatever means necessary. This is that sense of the ends justifying the means. That as long as you are able to gain the power you desire, then the means by which you gain it is all justified. 
this is that Nietzschean concept of the will to power. If you have the will to act, if you have the agency to get what it is that you desire, then you have the right to get what it is you desire. That if we are merely evolved beings, and if evolution runs its course through natural selection, where the strong are privileged and the weak are weeded out, then if you have the will to power, then you have the moral obligation to seize power, right? By whatever means necessary. And so Tom Shippey's quote is warding off of that. Evil has to be resisted and fought, not by any means available, but by all means virtuous. It matters how we win. It matters how we fight, not just that we win or that we fight. And Nickabrick here is couching his worldview right at the heart of all of these secular philosophies. Like Nietzsche, he asserts this will to power, right? We ought to call on the white witch because we want power. We don't want goodness. We don't want right power. We want brute power. Even if it comes with a great deal of evil, even if it comes with a great deal of sorcery, we want power and we want a power that will be on our side. So Aslan represents power, but Aslan represents a hierarchical power. Aslan represents a power that Nicobrick must bow to. Like Caspian, Nicobrick doesn't like that idea of authority. And so he wants a power that he can wield. Remember, he says, when your sword breaks, you draw your dagger as though these are objects that he can wield for his own purposes. That he is for the dwarves, he is for our side, and therefore we want not just any power, but we want a power that we can use to our own advantage, which is very Nietzschean, very Machiavellian. This is something dramatized by Shakespeare in his play Othello, with the character Iago himself being this very Machiavellian and Nietzschean figure. Uh, where he says our bodies are gardens and our wills are the gardeners. That our agency, our desires, our motives, our wills, determining what we want ought to be able to govern our bodies into taking whatever we want. John Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost is much the same way, where he says it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I would rather be the king of my side, even if that means hell and damnation, than to serve the rightful king. Nicobrick does not want to bow his knee to the authority of Caspian, certainly not to the authority of Aslan. He wants the powers that are going to aggrandize his own desires. We want power, and we want a power that will be on our side. The use of the the plural pronoun, the we, the first person, we, we want power and we want a power that will be on our side, a power that will do our bidding, which is as much as to say he wants to be God. He wants to be king. It's not that he doesn't like King Caspian. He doesn't like a king that exists outside of himself. And so calling the white witch, summoning and conjuring her up to do his bidding is what he wants. As for power, do not the stories say that the witch defeated Aslan and bound him and killed him. That polysyndeton of the multiple conjunctions. The witch defeated Aslan and bound him and killed him uh, creates this effect of an endless power, a power that does this and this and this and this. Uh, that so much of it is uh, that he's seeking as a means of 
uh, self-aggrandizement, self-worship, that we might use the white witch and her power to our own ends, whether they're virtuous or not. Remember Tom Shippey's quote, evil has to be resisted and fought, not by all means available, but by all means virtuous. And it's the virtuous means of fighting this fight that Nickabrick is willing to dispel with, I'm sorry, to dispense with uh, in order to get his own advantages. The last, uh, the last notion I want to mention this might draw a connection to is something we'll see in The Magician's Nephew when we discover that the White Witch uh, has completely annihilated her home planet of Charn um, through the use of a deplorable word that once spoken annihilates all life, um, that she is willing to use that word uh, to destroy Charn, to destroy this whole planet. It's like the uh, it's like the atomic bomb in World War uh, Two, the end of World War Two. The the uh, the use of power for its own sake to get what one wants, despite uh, the morality or the virtue of the dilemma. Nickabrick expresses this this quest and this qu this craving for power that he's willing to go to any lengths uh, to get. The others there begin to interact with Nickabrick's ideas and his plans. He continues to say, well, the kings and queens of old have faded out and Aslan has faded away from history. And how do we even know for sure? And, and he says, but it's very difficult with the witch. I'm sorry, it's very different with the witch. They say she ruled for a hundred years, a hundred years of winter. There's power, if you like. There's something practical. So it's a great... Uh, advancement of his argument to say, though, ah, uh, Aslan, if he even existed, came for one moment in history and then you never hear from him again. Same with these supposed kings and queens. But the White Witch, according to the story, reigned for a hundred years of winter. Never mind the fact that Nickabrick is appealing to the same stories, <laughs> the same legends. So he's cherry picking his evidence. But then he says, ah, there's power, if you like, there's something practical. So now, not only has Nicobrick uh, centered his philosophy on these Machiavellian um, pursuits of power at all costs, uh, authority, and um, and and uh, the exercise of one's will at all costs, whether it's virtuous or not, this Nietzschean will to power, um, even Thrasymachus, these ancient pre-Socratic thinkers, uh, thought this way: the the morality of might makes right; that those who have power um, ought to wield it. Uh, this is the, the law of the jungle that there is no morality outside of, um, outside of brute force and, and might to seize it for oneself. Now he's moving toward pragmatism where something is good. If it works, it's not necessarily whether something is good because of its virtue or good because of its purpose, but now it's good. If it's efficient, it's good. If it's useful, it's good if it's practical. And that is also dangerous territory that uh, if you think of the, the novels of Dickens, for example, um, in A Christmas Carol, he has uh, one of the central characters that serves as the impetus for Scrooge's transformation is Tiny Tim, who in the industrial age of Victorian London is a useless figure. Tiny Tim is a cripple that he is, uh, he has no economic contributing uh, value. Uh, he's merely a drain on the resources. Remember what Scrooge says about the poor. 
He says, let them die and decrease the surplus population. There's a usefulness or a, a pragmatic element to getting rid of them. And uh, so Dickens in, in that work is arguing that there's something significant and valuable and worthy to human life that transcends its use or its usefulness, um, that a person's a person no matter how small. Here, uh, Nicobrick says, there's power, there's something practical, that something ought to be pursued merely if it has practical value, uh, which is a dangerous, dangerous philosophy. He moves forward uh, closer into some moral uh, relativism. Um, Caspian says, wasn't she a tyrant? <laughs> what? Wasn't she the worst enemy of all? She'd be a, she's a tyrant 10 times worse than Miraz. And Nicobrick says, perhaps, perhaps she was for you humans, if there were any of you in those days. Perhaps she was for some of the beasts. She stamped out the beavers, I dare say. At least there are none of them in Narnia now, but she got on all right with us dwarfs. I'm a dwarf and I stand by my own people. We're not afraid of the witch. So again, a lot of layers here to what Nicobrick is arguing for and what he's arguing from. So here he's bringing in these suspicions and doubts. Well, maybe, maybe she was uh, a tyrant to you. Maybe she was to the beavers, but to us, she was great. So this is why we should summon her up because we find her to be a good source of power, right? Where now the value of a decision is based on of what it will benefit me. Yeah, yes, she might have been a tyrant to you, but to us, she was great. So we're going to say she's great. Uh, this is the same argument of a Nazi suggesting uh, that Hitler is a good source of power. He was evil, perhaps, maybe to you, but to us, he was wonderful. And again, slippery slope here. The, the, the uh, wobbly territory that, that Nickerbrick is moving toward with his worldview here to suggest based off of um, pragmatism, based off of the ends justifying the means, this Machiavellian morality, based off of the moral relativism that he's asserting here, um, that Nickerbrick is posing himself as a villain. And again, he's about to be uh, conquered and killed by Caspian and company, um, which is a right treatment of villains for Lewis's view of fairy tale. But he's a particular kind of villain. I think one that we ought to have eyes to see that uh, there are villains in the Narnian books that are overt, that are obvious. Uh, and then there are villains who are craftier and subtler. And this represents one where Nicobrick is speaking the worldly wisdom that sounds appealing, sounds reasonable, sounds appeasing, and yet is quite dangerous. And so we need to have our eyes attuned to that. Uh, and the final thing he says, which is one of the slipperiest of all, is he says, she got on all right with us dwarfs, which is doubtful. If you remember in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, she enslaved a dwarf, had him pull her sledge and so on. She got on all right with us dwarfs. I'm a dwarf and I stand by my own people. Devin Brown argues about this, where he says that this, this is a particular virtue of Nicobricks, if we can call it that, that gets absolutized. It gets totalized and therefore becomes an idol. That it's a virtue to stand by your own people. It is a virtue to care for your people. It is a virtue to think about what is best for your fellow man. What, what is stemming from a love of your kindred, a love of your people. 
this is that sort of uh, national interest for your own community, your own people, your own uh, your own group. That is good. You want to be loyal. Truffle Hunter is praised for being loyal. And uh, several characters are praised for being loyal to Caspian. And so Nicobrick asserts a sort of loyalty to his own people here. But again, this, uh, this virtue that in its rightful place, in its right order, is a good virtue when out of order becomes a vice. This goes back to Augustine's view of, of the order of our loves, the, uh, the ordo amoris, the order of our affections. Um, and all the way back to Plato with the view of the soul being rightly ordered and a, a disordered soul, a soul that is governed by our appetites rather than by our reason, um, our loves that are out of order turn virtues into vices. They turn good things into evil things uh, by having them loved in the wrong order or in the wrong way. And we have that here where his love for his own people, he has permitted to. Uh, this particular virtue to become absolute, to become uh, out of order, and therefore it is idolized, and he is willing to do um, immoral actions. He's willing to do vicious deeds, deeds of vice, in order to fulfill this um, this stance he's taking for his own people. Uh, the conversation reaches a, a climax here where they are all arguing with one another, and then it moves into a skirmish where the hag and the werewolf and Nicobrick himself on the verge of summoning up the white witch are killed. Um, Lewis spares his young readers the death of these traitors uh, by confusing the battle and, and describing it without much gritty detail. And even Caspian himself says it's probably a good thing that uh, none of us knows who killed Nicobrick. And, and finally, uh, Peter comes in and he meets Caspian. Uh, Caspian says, I've no idea who you are. Trumpkin says, it's the high king, King Peter. Caspian says, your majesty is very welcome. And Peter says, and so is your majesty. He calls him by his regnal title, your majesty. I haven't come to take your place, you know, but to put you into it. Which, as I opened the episode with, it's a great assertion of Peter's recognition of hierarchy. Where although Peter is the high king, that he recognizes that in this age, in this world, in this kingdom, Caspian is the rightful heir. And so there's this wonderful transference of, of authority, this, this endowment, like a father blessing his son, where the father has authority over the son, but he also can recognize the blessing of giving his son the authority that he needs to rule his family, rather than to interrupt or, or impede that authority somehow. And lastly, uh, Caspian gives the final glimpse of Nicobrick. We don't hear about Nicobrick, um, at least not by name, uh, again in the Chronicles. And Caspian says, I am sorry for Nicobrick. Though he hated me from the first moment he saw me, he had gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. If we had won quickly, he might have become a good dwarf in the days of peace. I don't know which of us killed him. I'm glad for that. Uh, and so they take the hag and the werewolf and they throw them into the pit, but they give Nicobrick to the dwarves for a proper burial. And Caspian comments on Nicobrick's evil. He says he's gone sour inside. That uh, it seems like in Narnia, there are, there are noble creatures and there are evil creatures. And then there are those who could have gone either way, depending on their will and their choices. 
and Nicobrick had gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. And then we're going to see this same sort of effect in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace's greed um, that has polluted his heart goes to transforming him on the outside, what he had already become on the inside. Uh, Lewis says something like, thinking dragonish thoughts, he had become a dragon. Uh, that Eustace is dragoned in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader because he had spent so much time on his inside being a dragon, thinking like a dragon, behaving like a dragon, that he finally becomes one on the outside. Same thing here with Nicobrick, that he had gone sour inside through long suffering and hating, and that souring on the inside finally manifests itself on the outside where he acts on that souring and becomes a traitor. So thank you again for joining us for uh, this week's episode. Make sure you tune in next time as we look at chapter 13 of Prince Caspian titled The High King in Command. <laughs>